Hello, I'm Gareth Carpenter, Farmer Content Editor at Informer Markets, and welcome to today's CPHI podcast. We're going to be discussing the distinction of pharmaceuticals versus cosmetics from a regulatory and a compliance perspective. As more and more companies operating in the pharma space are moving into cosmetics, the temptation is to think that life will be much easier when it comes to marketing your products. However, while it's true that pharma is more heavily regulated, this does not mean that cosmetics developers can rest on their laurels. The subtle lines between making marketing claims about cosmetics that are deemed allowable and those crossing the line into drug products can often be blurred. The wrong claims can cause a cosmetic product be misbranded, attracting unwanted attention from the Food and Drug Administration. And so in this podcast, we're going to take a look at the various common compliance issues that can arise when jumping the boundary from drugs to cosmetics. And so before we delve deeper into this subject, I'd like to introduce my guests on today's podcast, John Bailey and Catherine Bailey from EAS Consulting. John is the EAS Independent Advisor for Colours and Cosmetics and a former director of the FDA's Office of Cosmetics and Colours. His 34-year agency career began as a chemist in the Division of Colours and Cosmetics, and he went on to serve in other prominent agency positions, including that of Director of the Office of Applied Research and Safety Assessment in the Office of Science. Since leaving the agency in 2002, he served at the Cosmetic, Toiletry and Fragrance Association and the Personal Care Products Council. Catherine, or Kitty, is an EAS independent consultant and former director in the FDA's Division of Cosmetics and Compliance and serves as the staff scientist for the Personal Care Products Council. Kitty assists EAS clients with cosmetic labelling issues and filing colour additive petitions. John and Kitty, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to meet you both. So to kick off the discussion, companies developing and manufacturing OTC and prescription pharmaceutical products have to navigate extremely stringent regulation, as we know, in order to reach their markets. What would you say, John, are the key similarities between the pharma and cosmetics industries when it comes to regulatory compliance? Well, in fact, there are a lot of similarities. Cosmetics are, in fact, regulated by FDA, and you might even say that they're heavily regulated by FDA in that they have to be safe and properly labeled. And it's important to note that failure to comply with these fundamental requirements carries serious consequences, just like for OTC drugs and uh, prescription drugs. The tools that are afforded to FDA are actually almost identical in that FDA can pursue regulatory action to address adulterated and misbranded cosmetics, just like they can for OTC and RX drugs. So the tools that FDA has are powerful. They're varied. They can address product issues in many different forms. It is often for cosmetics the case that it it really relates to risk. Drugs certainly carry with them a greater risk to adverse outcomes than cosmetics. So there's a risk assessment that FDA does in deciding their regulatory compliance action. So that said, I think the overall requirements for cosmetics are not as stringent for drugs and uh, medical devices or foods or dietary supplements. So cosmetics are regulated, but they're not as stringently regulated as OTCs and RX. And conversely, what are sort of the key differences, the ones that really stand out between the two for you? 
The biggest standout, of course, is pre-market approval. Virtually all OTC drugs and RX drugs require pre-market approval. The exact manner may vary slightly, but nevertheless, pre-market approval is a requirement, whereas for cosmetics, there is not a requirement for pre-market approval, except interestingly for additives, which I think we'll talk about in a minute. You know, another key difference has to do with inspections and good manufacturing practice requirements. Drug manufacturers know very well, and an FDA inspection is a very lengthy and in-depth process. That's typically not the case for cosmetics unless there's something that they're focusing on. There is a recall authority that exists for drugs that does not apply to cosmetics. Cosmetics are subject to voluntary recall but not mandatory. And of course, for drugs, there are labeling requirements for cosmetics too, but they are not so strict. And finally, uh, for drugs, many drugs, the inactive ingredients are prescribed as to what you can use and what you can't use or what you have to do to, to change an inactive ingredient. Whereas for cosmetics, you're pretty much free to use any ingredient that you want as long as it's safe. I see. So, yeah, if we turn to color additives, which are obviously a very important component of cosmetics products, and if I could turn to you, Kitty, as I understand it, color additives, when used in cosmetics, they do require FDA approval before they go on the market. Why is this? This goes back historically a long way. They've been required by statute since 1938 for what we call the coal tar colors. In other words, these are the ones derived from coal and petroleum and other sources such as that. And then in 1960, such requirement was applied to what some in the world like to call natural colors. And I'll talk more about that in just a second. But basically, this is a requirement by the statute since uh, the middle of the last century. The federal scrutiny was really prompted by safety issues associated with the coal tar colors primarily, but it also applied to heavy metals. And also there was a uh, very serious health concern with a dye causing blindness. So in that regard, colors got a lot of scrutiny in the mid thirties and the drug and cosmetic colors were basically evaluated together and listed as such. That's why we have what we call the D and C colors. Also, there's a group called the FD&C, which are the food, drug, and cosmetic colors. Those have a little more leeway. Batch certification was required for the food colors since about 1910. In the mid-30s, the cosmetic and drug colors, those derived from the coal tar, if you will, were also required to be certified. And then in 1960, the federal statutes listed color additives in general, including colors exempt from the certification. And Again, the word natural has no regulatory significance, but just because you have a color that you might consider that, if it's used to impart color to a product, it must be listed. So there are two separate categories. You have your colors exempt and your colors requiring certification. And your definition of a, of a color is very broad in the U.S. It's basically something that's added to a product that, that can impart color. And it includes uh, blacks and white and gray. It includes things like dihydroxyacetone that itself colorless, but when you apply it to the skin, it reacts with the protein and it produces a color. We know that they must be listed. All colors used in cosmetics and drugs and foods must be listed by the FDA. And about half of these must be batch by batch certified. 
So what you have is a palette of about 65 colors for use in cosmetics. 29 of these are exempt from certification. 36 require certification. And FDA has a very nice summary table of the colors that can be used in cosmetics. And that's a link that can readily be accessed, or of course, we can supply it to you. And so that's your thumbnail sketch of, of colors in the U.S. Thanks very much for that, Kitty. This may sound like a bit of a disingenuous question, but anyway, I'll ask it. Um, why are the labeling requirements for cosmetic products so important? When you think about it, labeling is fundamental to cosmetic products. Most of the marketing, cosmetic marketing, is labeling and, and presentation. And in that context, cosmetics are, in fact, subject to labeling requirements of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act. And together, they provide the elements of a cosmetic label. But it's interesting to note that they're different. Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act addresses the safety and labeling of products, whereas the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act applies to consumer commodities which are products that are sold. So a professional use products that's, that's not sold to consumers is not a consumer commodity and therefore not subject to the requirements of the Fair Package and the Labeling Act. The Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires that the label be contain the net quantity of contents, the name and place of business, warning statements and directions for safe use, and the Fair Packaging Labeling Act provides for labeling of the statement of identity. What is the product? What is it going to be used for? Is it a shampoo? Is it a soap? Is it a hair styling product? What exactly is it being used for? It also addresses that quality of contents, name and place of business, and the declaration of ingredients. The declaration of ingredients is something that was developed in the 1970s, and the, and the Fair Package and Labeling Act, interestingly, gives the agents the authority to require declaration of ingredients, but it doesn't require it. And cosmetics were the first of all FDA-regulated products that were required to be labeled with the declaration of ingredients. There are extensive regulations that have been established implementing these laws. They are uh, sometimes hard to understand when you read them. And a lot of our consulting work is to help people with the labeling of their product, what they want to do and turn it into a label that's compliant with the regulations. So it's, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to understand and, and companies do request help and we help them to comply with the regulations. I can imagine it is uh, obviously a complex process for companies to sort of navigate all the regulations and, and you guys are obviously here to provide that help. What are the key challenges that companies face when they're making these types of claims on cosmetics labeling? Is, is there a list, for example, of key do's and don'ts? Yeah, the key challenge from our perspective and in the work that we do with companies is to help them stay within the boundaries of the cosmetics definition and not drift into the realm of drugs. Cosmetics are products that cleanse, beautify, promote attractiveness, or alter the appearance, whereas drugs treat or prevent disease or affect the structure or function of the body. So there's a pretty sharp line between the two, 
And FDA is very interested in cosmetic stain on the cosmetic side of the line. And so the big challenge is to help with that. So you can do promoting of your products. So there's a lot of flexibility and and latitude in terms of what you do to promote your product. And this involves the notion of puffery in product promotion and FDA accepts reasonable puffery statements as long as they don't invoke therapeutic or medicinal claims. That's an interesting concept. It's been around a long time and there is no regulatory definition for puffery. You will not find one in the regulations and you'll have a hard time finding it in the the literature for cosmetic regulation and history. So it's Something you can do, you can say, my product is the best in the world for making your hair look silky and smooth or your skin have a nice tone or or make you beautiful or, or make your lips nice and shiny. You can say those things, but you can't couch it in terms of a medicinal or therapeutic effect. The claims make a product a drug are many. And claims uh, that should be avoided are generally anti-aging, cell turnover, renewal, growth claims. One that comes up a lot is spot treatment and removal. You can cover spots, but you can't remove them or treat them. You have to be careful when you talk about penetrating the skin to deliver nutrients and so forth. I mean, maybe, Kitty, you have a couple more. Oh, antioxidants is another another favorite one. Allergy treatment, anti-itch, anti-irritation or inflammation, improving skin damage, boosting skin health. For example, you can say it's okay to cover up acne, but you can't treat acne. I think that's an important distinction. Yes. Obviously, safety is obviously a big concern within the realm of pharmaceutical products, but it's also true for cosmetics as well. What do, in your opinion, um, companies need to do to demonstrate uh, ingredient safety in cosmetics? It's a fundamental requirement that products be safe. And in this regard, the company is responsible for ensuring that the ingredients used and the product itself are safe. So that's a company responsibility. That doesn't differ so much from drugs because it's also a drug manufacturer's responsibility, but it's different in the realm of cosmetics. Uh, It is a legal requirement that the product be safe. However, unlike other products, FDA does not tell you how to accomplish this, what test to conduct on ingredients and products. This is both a freedom and a responsibility for companies. We, in our consulting, highly recommend that companies develop and maintain a safety dossier for their products and ingredients. And while FDA does not have the authority to access that dossier or to require it, it just makes good business sense to maintain a safety folder, safety dossier for your product. There are many resources to help. I think the primary resource is the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Program, which systematically reviews ingredients in an open public uh, forum, and they publish scientific reports of their findings and recommendations. And we use that a lot when a company comes to us and says, well, I have 25 ingredients. Can you tell me about these? The CIR, for most of them, there's a review. 
There's also a similar program for fragrances under the International Fragrance Association. The EU guidelines for safety are very helpful. They're actually required in Europe, but in the U.S. can serve as useful references. FDA guidelines for other products. And finally, uh, ingredient suppliers can be helpful. In those instances, which are not common, but they do happen, where there is no available safety information for an ingredient, it's highly recommended that a safety assessment be conducted by a qualified scientist. And this uh, report that is conducted can be made part of the uh, safety dossier. I'd like to address manufacturing as well. Unlike pharma, good manufacturing practice is not a legal requirement for cosmetics businesses. Um, as I understand it, the FDA's guidelines are non-binding. Given this, what are the reasons why cosmetics manufacturers should still take the issue of GMP seriously? Well, when you think about it, GMPs are fundamental to developing and manufacturing cosmetics, or for that matter, any other product. And I would extend that to say they are fundamental to manufacturing safe and products that comply with the regulations. I can give you examples in my career at FDA where a company ran into serious problems because they did not have GMP programs. If you're in the business of making products and marketing them to consumers, GMPs, I think, are essential. Without establishing and following GMPs, you're likely to make mistakes that can harm the product or the consumer, for that matter. Again, that said, as you note, unlike drugs, cosmetics do not have a GMP regulatory mandate. And I would qualify that by saying yet. I think there are indications that this may be on the horizon. Companies are responsible and free to develop GMP programs that are suitable for their product. That's a great deal of freedom. You can take your particular situation and the nature of your product, and you can develop a GMP program that is best aligned with your particular situation. There's a lot of guidance available. FDA has posted, as you know, non-binding GMP guidelines on their website. There's also an ISO GMP standard developed for cosmetics. That's ISO standard 2716. The EU has published GMP guidance, I believe, and you are free to adapt any of the existing GMP regulations, such as food and drugs, to your individual needs. In the final analysis, development adheres to documentation of GMPs is important. If you are inspected by FDA, telling FDA about your GMP program will likely be beneficial to you. I've got one final question for you. Looking into the future and bearing in mind that companies developing cosmeceutical products, which by which I mean those products that make claims about medicinal properties, do you think there's any possibility that the FDA will tighten any regulation in this sector? Well, at first I would start by kind of noting, you know, in our careers, the term cosmeceutical came up a lot and there's really no regulatory niche for cosmeceuticals. So you have a cosmetic, you have a drug, you can have a product that's both a cosmetic and a drug. But cosmeceuticals is more of a descriptor that has gotten some common traction. That said, there has been a, quite a bit of activity over the last, I would say, five years or so mm -hmm. relative to developing new regulatory structure for cosmetics. 
and virtually all of them contemplate mandatory registration of products, mandatory good manufacturing practices, uh, requiring FDA to conduct uh, safety reviews based on a prioritization system. So yes, I think there is movement to develop a new regulation. Uh, in the US, the political process can be a bit tortured to be kind, but it's nevertheless interest on both sides of the issue to implement a new regulatory structure. Interestingly, the NGOs have been very involved in this process um, and have pushed very hard for their vision. And then the industry has their view, of course. And I expect that sometime, probably in the next two or three years, we may see some serious movement in this direction. John and Kitty, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Our pleasure. Thank you. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you for listening to the podcast and please do head to cphi-online.com for lots more news, features and analysis on the latest developments impacting the global pharmaceutical supply chain. Our next podcast in the series will be coming to you soon. In the meantime, goodbye and I wish you a pleasant day ahead. Thank you.